According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As always, our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, in John chapter 10. John 10, verses 22 through 39. Now, there is a uh, disadvantage to doing a harmony as opposed to a book study. In other words, as we blend Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, in some respects, a literary chapter, a literary section can be broken up because we are in a chronology study. We are dealing with events in a sequence uh, more so than uh, passages in a uh, logical development. And that's one of the things we've experienced here in the case of uh, John chapter 10 being broken up the way that it has. Because uh, the first 21 verses of John chapter 10, um, where he announced, I am the good shepherd, I am the door. Uh, We went through this at some time uh, back because chronologically there were a lot of events in between verse 21 and verse 22. There were... um, Uh, several chapters that we dealt with in the Gospel of Luke, for example, and other journeys and other travels and so forth. And so by the time we've gotten back now to um, John and uh, we start looking at verses 22 and following, we realize that um, there's a continuity there of doctrine being presented by the Holy Spirit in the authorship of this text. And so much of what we see in these verses uh, when we talk about... um, Uh, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. We look at uh, verse 27, and even prior to that, in verse 26, you uh, do not believe because you are not my sheep. Uh, We we do ourselves a disservice if we simply handle this as an event in the Feast of Dedication, and we fail to acknowledge the fact that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John was recording this shepherd and sheep message immediately attaching it to the Good Shepherd message that he taught in uh, verses 1 through 21 with I am the Good Shepherd. You spot it there in verse 11 and so forth. So I'm going to try to take a little bit of time today to to patch together the narrative from verses 1 through 21, connecting it together with verses 22 and following so that we don't miss that in the the process of doing our our Through the Bible chronology. Okay, I'm just going to... Not important. Not important. Got your phones turned off? All right. That's a good idea. I'm expecting a call from our printer so we can get our uh, ABC readers in hand. But All right. Let's start with prayer. Have I prayed yet? Last week I tried to pray twice, so we'll just pray once this week. How about that? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before your throne of grace this morning, thankful for the grace that is freely found there, the mercy and grace that we can find to help in time of need. Father, this is a time of need. We are uh, peering into the eternal truth of your word. We are finite creatures in need of your grace, in need of your the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit to take the infinite truths of your word and translate it to the finite 
understanding of our minds and of our human spirit. So we thank you for your faithfulness to guide us into the truth. We ask this morning as we return back to John 10 that you would open our eyes to not only the doctrine that's contained there, but the urgency for our own application, how we might live these truths for the glory of Jesus Christ. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, to this point now, we have gotten through points one and two, and we're dealing with point three in uh, Jesus revealing their unbelief. So I'm going to skip through under point one. We dealt with the uh, teachings that were related to Hanukkah and the festival of rededication that occurs here. As we read, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. That's today known as Hanukkah, coming from the Hebrew text uh, behind this Greek word. And, uh, of course, it was winter in verse 23. We gave some of the history on that as well. Roughly equivalent to our Christmas time frame. Not always, but usually within a few days of uh, December the 25th is when uh, Chislev the 25th occurs and their eight-day festival of lights. Under point two, we uh, gave the point the Jews demand Jesus make a plain claim of being the Messiah. And uh, we saw that he has been making messianic claims all throughout the Gospel of John and the record there. He's been making messianic claims throughout the three and a half year ministry or four and a half year ministry. Uh, He's been making messianic claims ever since his baptism at the River Jordan when the Holy Spirit descended and the voice out of heaven said, Behold, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. There could be no stronger messianic claim than that. Well, uh, their excuse here, they want a plain statement. They want an I am statement. They want I am the Christ. And he's not been saying that. And he won't say that. And uh, we gave some points on this. Um, the, the last time he made a plain language statement, they wanted to stone him. And this time as well, we see opposition. We gave some of the vocabulary, including the verb kuklao, K-U-K-L-O-O, kuklao. And uh, when you turn those K's into C's and the U into a Y, then you see a C-Y-C-L, and it's where we get the English word cycle. And uh, it, it does indeed come from the, from the Greek, uh, often filtered through Latin in different ways. Uh, but kuklao, cycle, when you think about a circling and circling around, they were not gathering around him in a friendly manner. This was not a, uh, a friendly hug, uh, you know, huddle up football kind of thing. This was a mob. They were thronging him. They were besieging him. And I think the language there in Revelation 20 is pretty clear. In the Gog Magog rebellion, they besieged Jerusalem. The armies of the earth were gathered around Jerusalem and the saints of the highest one. A couple other subpoints and things there. All right, point three then. Jesus reveals the Jews' unbelief in one of the most precious messages he ever gives. And this is what we're looking at today in terms of verses 25 through 30. We will handle verses 31 through 39 separately. Uh, it is a follow up to 25 through 30. So the doctrine we get out of 25 through 30 uh, will be repeated and will be intensified in 31 and following. You'll see that when we get to that point. Let's look at it. Um, Verse 24 says, The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? Literally, will you be lifting up our soul? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me, but you do not believe. So he gave a verbal message. They rejected it. 
He gave visible evidence through the miracles. They rejected it. Two witnesses, his message and his miracles, they rejected them both. You do not believe. You do not believe. And uh, part of what we'll talk about today is the stress on the uh, the indicative case here, the stress of uh, there, it doesn't say you cannot believe, but you do not believe. And we're going to evaluate that based upon, of course, the uh, role of the father in drawing the sheep and the role of the father in giving uh, sheep to his son and how this works. So, um, again, I, tell, I did tell you and you do not believe uh, the works that I do in my father's name. These testify to me, but you do not believe. And here's why. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. And we're going to evaluate what it takes to become a sheep. And at what point uh, are we his sheep? And uh, whose sheep are we before we become his sheep? Or are we sheep at all uh, prior to salvation? Are we sheep at all prior to uh, being called and being given? And in some cases, the order of these things may not be as important. And sometimes it may be very important. And I think... By the time we get done looking at the study today, we will uh, we'll recognize what's important and what's not. So you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. All right. Now, the context takes us beyond that down from verses 31 through 39. But we're going to stop with verse 30 for the point of this study and uh, build upon it when we get that far. Now, they did not believe. Sub point A, they did not believe in spite of the message delivered and in spite of the miracles done. They did not believe in spite of the message delivered and in spite of the miracles done. This, by the way, is why miracles are not necessary. In fact, uh, believing as a consequence of miracles is a rather inferior uh, aspect on believing. Christ told Philip that. Have you, uh, do you now believe because you have seen and, and uh, spoke about blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe? We understand that. We have the verses here. We can relate it back to John chapter 5, I think, and get a... Uh, a clearer idea on it. We already read verse 25. Uh, glance down, if you would, down to verse 38, uh, where again he's going to repeat the impact that these miracles are supposed to have. If I, do not, if I do the works of my Father, don't believe me, but if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. That reciprocal indwelling is what we're going to study when we uh, when we try to bring application in our own thinking of what is this oneness, the oneness of the Father and the Son. I am the Father, are one, and we're supposed to be one. Well, how can we be one when we are plural, right? We're, we're, we're many. How are the many one? And um, we have a clue there in terms of the reciprocal indwelling between the Father and the Son. Back to chapter 5, just by way of reminder. John 5.36 In John chapter 5, there was a uh, question with respect to testimony and uh, some accusation here that, well, he was bearing witness concerning himself, so his testimony is not true. And, that, and he says, you know what, there are all kinds of witnesses to who I am, including himself and including his father. 
And so um, he says in verse 31, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. And then you have sent to John. He has testified to the truth. But uh, the testimony which I receive is not from man. I say these things so that you may be saved. And then he goes beyond that. Verse 36, the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. Remember, the purpose for giving a spirit-indwelled prophet and for miracles in the Old Testament time and in the early church was to validate the uh, the having been sent reality that this was a messenger sent from heaven. You had to pay attention to what he said. And if he was a writing prophet, it was recognized that his writings were scripture. His writings were to be added to the canon of scripture. All right. Well, then there is the... Um, there is the uh, cooperation there. So they did not believe in spite of the message delivered and in spite of the miracles done. Keep in mind, the stress on this is you do not believe. You have not believed. Now, secondly, they did not believe because, and it's described in this passage as being causative, they did not believe because they were not his sheep. And that's the order, and that's the text. And we want to understand that. I think uh, we don't want to deny this. There's a tendency um, on the part of some, and they want to debate, for example, Calvinism versus Arminianism, or they want to debate um, sovereignty and free will, or they want to debate any, any number of things. Uh, and they find a passage that presents truth in a certain order, and then that's what they camp on, such as here. Um, you do not believe, that's an indicative statement of fact, because you are not of my sheep. And so that's the order and that's the causative uh, passage here. And so believers can camp on it. Now, if that's the only passage in the Bible that speaks in this realm or in this subject or in this capacity, then that's what the Bible says and that's what we go with. But if there are other passages, for example, that turn it around the different direction, and we can make this statement the other way as well, which I'll highlight for you here in a moment under sub point one, because you can turn it around backwards. Um, if there are passages that allow you to say it the other way, then you have to accept that passage as being true as well. And you cannot camp on one and deny the other. You cannot do that. You cannot fall into an either-or mentality, in which case when you do that, you're saying this verse is true, that verse is lie. God doesn't lie. Both verses are true. See, and there's a lot of uh, a lot of um, writers that fall into these various traps and uh, different things. We were discussing one last Sunday night in the sense man, Adam, is made in the image and likeness of God, image and likeness. And it's always, except in one place, image and likeness, image and likeness, image and likeness. Well, in in Genesis five, the order is turned around to likeness and image. And so then you have to stay. Wait a minute. Why is it turned around in that passage? What is the distinction there? When it is given both ways, is it significant for it being given both ways? And uh, we've done other studies, for example, uh, in, that, uh, in that regard. Well, not to uh, belabor any of that, let's stick to this text here. They did not believe because they were not his sheep. How did they become his sheep? They were given to him from God the Father. 
God the Father gave them. Every sheep Jesus has is a sheep that the Father has given to the Son. All right, we want to recognize that. A sheep uh, becomes a sheep. How does a sheep become a sheep? Well, his parents are sheep. All right, so he's born a sheep. Well, is that what happens here? Uh, who are our sheep parents and what fold were we in prior to uh, coming into this fold, for example? And is that the nature of it in the metaphor of what's being described? Now, we want to understand even unbelievers belong to the Father when he says, all souls are mine. And we understand the, the possession of the Father as the sovereign of the universe. That includes believers and unbelievers alike when he says, all souls are mine. So at what point does a soul become a sheep, become a gift from the Father to the Son? And the father doesn't give the son, um, you know, goats, doesn't give the son uh, false sheep or, or wolves in sheep clothing. He gives the son sheep and, this, and his sheep. And Jesus Christ holds those sheep. So let's take a look at it. The great sheep passages, of course, here in John 10. Um, and this is where, again, we have our connection between the early paragraph and the, or the first half of the chapter and the last half of the chapter. It's only a uh, is that an alarm? Oh, okay. I thought maybe there's a car alarm going off out there. All right. I thought maybe it was a bird on cocaine or something. All right. But verse four and then verses twenty six and twenty seven and and you see the connection. Uh, the sheep and shepherd metaphor is what links the first half of the chapter with the last half of the chapter. And so uh, we read in 10.4, when he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech, this parable, this allegory, this, this figurative language. See, just because we're a little interpretationist doesn't mean we have problems with figures of speech or allegories or metaphors. We recognize it for what it is, and we apply the doctrine appropriately. All right. More things in here. You remember when we taught this, right? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, and uh, that he leads forth his own. He, he leads them in. He leads them out. And uh, notice he says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. So uh, who are those other sheep that are not of this fold? And why are there other sheep in different folds and they're not in the fold of Israel? Okay. Understand, of course, that in the Old Testament, the mystery doctrine was not yet revealed that Jews and Gentiles were going to be put together as one body in Christ. That was not revealed in the Old Testament. He alludes to it in the idea here, but it's not clearly spelled out. All right, two other passages we want to lock in on for this morning include chapter 6 and chapter 8. They're all in the Gospel of John, and they're all heavy priorities for him in his Gospel. Something, in the, uh, something that was not as developed in the synoptics, such as we see here in the Gospel of John. So John 6, verse 37, 44, 45, and 65. It's an assortment of passages. We're not just cherry picking, but you'll see it's an assortment of passages that's properly selected so as to illustrate what we're, what we're looking at. All right. Now, in John chapter 6, this is the, uh, the passage here where he feeds the 5,000 and then he walks on water and then they chase him around on the other side of the lake. 
they couldn't walk on water, so they had to run around and catch up to him. And then they want him to, to feed them some more. They want more bread. Feed us some more. And uh, he's rebuking them. They're, they don't want the, the bread. I mean, they don't want the teaching. They just want their bellies filled. So uh, in the process of this, he says, you guys got to get saved. And so verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Recognize right there. When you're using the language of metaphors, understand what the metaphors represent. Believing, coming to, those are interchangeable terms. Eating, drinking, those are metaphors when the, when the scope is bread or, or flesh or body or, or blood or wine. You can use eat and you can use drink, but the, the meaning behind those pictures is believe. And the equivalent statement of believing is coming to. Do you see that in verse 35? He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. So there's your equivalency between coming to Jesus and believing. They're simply equivalent expressions. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you come to Jesus Christ. That is a biblical statement. Now, you don't do that on your own initiative and you don't do that in your own righteousness because you're totally depraved and unable to come until such time as he starts drawing you and when he starts working in the heart of an unbeliever, when the Holy Spirit starts convicting and the Father starts drawing, and when the Father starts drawing and the invitation is offered, you do indeed come, as the passage says here. So verse 36, But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Oh, I love that verse. I love that. That was one of Spurgeon's favorite verses. It's my, one of my favorite verses. All the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. J- Jesus Christ is not going to throw away any gift he receives from God the Father. And that includes you, that includes me, that includes every born-again believer in Christ. We are a gift from the Father to the Son. And it's the will of the Father that the Son not lose even one. And the Son does not lose even one. So... Again, there is the order on it. All the Father gives me, notice, will come to me. Now, there's an order there, all right? Because the Father gives to the Son, and they are the ones who will come, all right? So you can think of the giving as preceding the coming. The Father gives to the Son, and then they come at a point in time when the the veil is pierced and the the gospel is clear and the faith is exercised when faith is exercised they come but you understand that the father giving precedes that in terms of the statement here likewise in the statement we have in our text in john 10 that you do not believe because you are not my sheep all right so and the one who comes to me how's that how does he does he do it through human effort Does he do it through what he earns and deserves? Does he do it through works of righteousness? No, you can't do one good thing until you are saved. No, you come. The definition of coming is believing from verse 35. So the one who comes to me, in other words, the one who believes in Jesus Christ, I will certainly not cast out. Now a little bit further down. Well, here, let's just keep going. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me. This is the patriological will. The will of God the Father. That of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. 
This is the perseverance of the saints. This is the eternal security we understand. When God the Father gives a sheep to Jesus Christ, it's the Father's will that Jesus lose nothing and raise him up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, everyone who beholds the Son. Now, is he saying the same thing repeatedly in different ways? Yes. Everything he says in verse 39 is repeated in verse 40, but we want to understand the human side of things. On God's side of things, all that he has given me, I lose nothing, raise him up on the last day. That's the sovereignty side of things. That's the father giving the sheep to his son. But here's uh, man's side of things. This is the will of my father that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him. See, on God's side of things, it's a sovereign gift from the father to the son. On man's side of things, he who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. It's a wonderful pair of verses in verses 39 and 40. And of course, the Calvinists want to emphasize verse 39 and pretend verse 40 isn't there. The Arminians want to emphasize verse 40 and pretend verse 39 isn't there. Both verses are there. (laughs) Both verses are there. One's not true and the other one's false. They're both true. We understand that. Don't fall for the either-or trap. Accept both and and deal with it. Now, uh, the Jews didn't like this message. They started grumbling. How can he say I'm the bread that came down out of heaven? This is uh, Joseph's son. We know where he came from. We know his father. We know his mother. We know his background. We know that uh, his birthday was less than nine months after their marriage date. And uh, we were going to accuse him of some uh, premarital uh, immorality and so forth. <laughs> Boy, they've they got the whole dossier on him, don't they? They've done their homework. Well, Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. Verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now we start to see some of the mechanics involved because the Father is going to give them to the Son. But how does He go about doing that? Remember verse 34, The Father gives them to me and they will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. There's not one that the Father gives to Jesus that fails to somehow come to Jesus. They're all going to come to Jesus. All that the Father gives will come. But here starts to explain how it happens. All, and no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. There's the drawing of the Father. And I will raise him up on the last day. Same language as verse 39. Same language as verse 40. So we recognize it's the same context. It's the same message being delivered. The Father draws. The Father draws. And this is God's grace provision because uh, there's none who seeks after righteousness. No, not one. In our lost estate, we're not looking to get saved. We're not looking to save ourselves. But the Father starts drawing. He starts working in the heart. And this is the common grace provision that precedes salvation. When God, by grace, makes these provisions possible. Okay. By the way, if you want more on this, our Sunday night class on election is uh, dealing with a lot of the sovereignty side of things as God elects us in Christ. Finally, then, the last uh, recap of this comes down in verse 65. He was saying, for this reason, I've said to you, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. This is the role of the Father. And um, 
and uh, the, the understanding we have. And, and it can be a, a blessing in our evangelism if we, uh, it takes the pressure off in our evangelism. We, we don't know who's elect and who's not. We don't know who's going to come to Christ and who won't. We just simply give the gospel. We talk to sinners about the death of Christ. We talk to sinners and we don't know. But see, if, uh, if we're hated and if we're rejected and if there's not a faith response, then we don't take it personally. We don't get worked up over it. We just recognize, hey, you know, until the Holy Spirit starts convicting, until the Father draws, and if that's not going to happen, then they're not going to come to Christ. So relax about it. It's a wonderful uh, provision for our relaxed mental attitude in uh, the gospel uh, ministry. All right, two chapters later in John 8. Another causative statement. Similar to the causative statement we have in John 10. He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them because, because, there's the causative, you are not of God. And that's how we understand it. Of course, the unbeliever cannot accept the things of God for their foolishness to him. Can't even hear him. He does not have ears to hear. You've got to have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, they did not believe because they were not his sheep. It is true, sub-point one then, it is true to assert both this statement and its inverse. You can say they did not believe because they were not his sheep. You can also say they were not his sheep. Because they do not believe, right? You can make that statement. You can make that statement, but that's not the statement this text is making. All right? You can make that statement from other understandings of Scripture, but not from this text. This text is putting the order in the first category, in the A category, not the B category. This specific passage does not assert the inverse. And when you try to twist it to make it say that, you're twisting the Scriptures. But it rather affirms the sovereign election of God the Father. So let's accept the statement for what it is. This specific passage does not assert the inverse, but rather affirms the sovereign election of God the Father. But see, that's why I took the time to go back to chapter 5, to go back to chapter 6, to show you uh, those verses side by side where you can see God's side of things on the one hand while man's side of things on the other hand is also a reality. I think if you have... Um, well, let's look at a couple of things here. I've got... Scriptures on my notes that aren't on the screen. Huh. So let's look at John 3.16. Do you need to turn there? God so loved, that's the Father, so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. There you go. That whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. There's the side of things that stresses man's activity, believing in Him. Whosoever believeth in him. It doesn't say God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whichever sheep he gives to Jesus will have eternal life. True statement, but that's not what John 3 says. John 3.16 says whosoever believeth in him. Okay, so what are we going to do? We're going to camp on John 3.16 and say uh, it's everybody who believes in Jesus that has eternal life. We're going to camp on another verse to say, oh, it's everybody that the Father gives to the Son. Those are His sheep. They're the ones that have eternal life. 
If we're going to draw a line in the sand and insist on an either or, we're missing out. We're missing out. John 17, verses 2 and 3 shows you the, uh, the Father's side. John 17, verses 2 and 3. Uh, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you even as you gave Him authority over all flesh. Now, He has authority over all flesh, but notice that to all whom you have given Him, He may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So in this passage, it's everybody the Father gave to the Son. Everybody the Father gave to the Son has eternal life. But in John 3, it's whosoever believe that has eternal life. I'm saying the same thing repeatedly, redundantly, over and over again. I'm trying to get you to understand that it's both and. The Father gives to the Son. And that's entirely their realm. We have nothing to do with any of that. But on, in, from our perspective, we believe in the gospel as it's proclaimed. And we receive eternal life. Now, the ownership. Back to John 10. Do you like being owned? I like being owned. Absolutely, I like being owned. Sub point three. This is sub point three. Remember, we're under main point three. Sub point B. And now, sub point three. So this is 3B3. Jesus Christ claims shepherding ownership. Remember, he's not a hireling. He is a shepherd, but he's also an owner. He's a shepherd owner of the sheep. Jesus Christ claims shepherd ownership or shepherding ownership of his sheep. They're his. He claims that ownership. They're possessive and promises intimate shepherding leadership in verse 27. Jesus Christ claims shepherding ownership of his sheep. And let me tell you, if you're under the good shepherd, you're not just out there hanging out in the wilderness, uh, fighting off the wolves yourself, going where you want to go, doing what you want to do. You're a part of his flock. You uh, go when he draws. You follow his voice. And it's a neat pattern because how did you become his sheep? You listen to a voice that was drawing you. You listen to the voice of the Father. That drew you, that spoke to you, that taught you, taught you the things of the gospel so you, so you could comprehend it, you could believe it. And listening to that voice of the Father, He turns you into a sheep and gives you to His Son. And you come to His Son. It's a wonderful pattern. Well, we see it here. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. The intimacy of shepherding, He knows them. Not just knowing about them, but knowing them. He knows each individual sheep. Now, this is the contrast with the hireling, of course. Um, and this is why we want to tie together the two halves of chapter 10. Uh, remember in, in verse 12, he who is a hired hand and not the shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep. Notice that shepherd owner are, are equated there. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand. He's not concerned about the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. This is the intimacy of shepherding. 
even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Well, this is what we're looking at here then in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Which means, um, of course, we're protected for the night in the sheepfold. But when morning comes, the doorkeeper opens the door. The shepherd comes, calls forth his own, and out we go. We've got a day's worth of walking to do. We've got to go feed. We've got to go drink. We've got to, we have to have our daily feeding. It's not going to be in the sheepfold. It's going to be out there in the, in the wild. But our shepherd will walk with us. Our shepherd will protect us. We're not going to be worried about the wolves. And before night falls, we're going to be back in the sheepfold again. Jesus Christ will get us back there again for a time of rest. Now, what does Jesus do? Well, let me talk about one more thing here. Jesus Christ received his sheep as a gift from God the Father. How did we become sheep of Jesus Christ? We became sheep of Jesus Christ as a gift from God the Father. John 10:29, the first half of the verse here. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. The Father who has, past completed action, present ongoing results, Father has given them to me. And remember, once the Father gives to the Son, He's not letting go. It's the Father's will that the Son lose not even one. Not even one. So, the... Um, the ownership here becomes important. And we'll be studying that as well. We already saw the Father drawing. We saw the Father wooing. The Father leads. The Father teaches. Um, there's more to study. And I would encourage you to go back when we taught John chapter 6. Go back and review the verses that, that speak about the Father drawing and the teaching that takes place there. Jesus quotes the Scripture that says, they shall be taught of God. And there is teaching from the Father in the part of that drawing and the part of that wooing and you listen to what's being taught and you learn and you come that's the uh, faith response to the come to the drawing of the father that uh, precedes of course the faith response in coming to the son does that make sense anyway review those notes because we gave those out back when we taught john chapter six all right now main point c this is gonna maybe uh blow your socks off in which case We'll take time at the end of class to uh, um, put your socks back on. All right. Dan's not even wearing socks, so that's all right. Jesus Christ does three things for his sheep. Jesus Christ does three things for his sheep. And that's going to give you a lot to think about. Maybe come back with some questions tonight or next week or something. But verse 28, outline it, look at it, and consider what's being said there. Now, first of all, who are his sheep? His sheep are the ones who would believe. You're not, you do not believe because you're not my sheep. So we become sheep when the Father gives us to the Son. That's when we become sheep. God the Father gives us to the Son. We become his sheep. Well, when was that? When we believed is when we got saved. Yeah, but when did the Father give us to his Son? Before the foundation of the world. That's right. Before the foundation of the world. So... Um, we become his sheep at that point, you know, positionally and then experientially in time, the moment of our salvation. We recognize that both on God's side and on man's side. But now notice, um, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. So we, we become saved. We come to Christ. We, we come under his teaching ministry. But now notice there's three things that he does for his sheep. First of all, he gives eternal life. He gives his sheep eternal life. It is a gift from the Son to the sheep. 
I give eternal life to them. Now, partly we're going to be breaking this down into steps and to stages and so forth. Don't get overly worked up about it because it all happens in that moment of our salvation. Okay, From that moment when you place your faith in Christ, you receive eternal life. Um, it's a gift. We talk about it as part of the, the salvation grace package. 36 things, 39 things, 53 things that accompany salvation including eternal life you know what what kind of salvation would it be if your sins were forgiven you're redeemed you're saved uh but you don't have eternal life okay it's not the same thing as salvation but it goes with salvation and we understand that but it is a gift from the son to the sheep as per this text here just as the sheep are a gift from the father to the son so god the father gives sheep to the son Jesus Christ then gives eternal life to the sheep. You follow that? Okay. And and that's maybe one that we don't puzzle over very often because we're saved and we have eternal life and we don't think much about it. But now here's a second item. He promises them never to perish. You say, well, duh. Isn't that kind of redundant? I thought you just said I had eternal life. You do have eternal life. And in addition to having eternal life, something separate. You ever think of these things separately? You will never perish. You will never perish. Now, it's interesting because there are, of course, John 3.16, other passages that describe eternal life on the one hand, perishing on the other hand, as if it's an either-or absolute deal. But here is a passage describing it in a both-and context, that you have both have eternal life and you also have a guarantee of never perishing. He promises them never to perish. Like that spider. That spider just perished. That spider did not have a promise never to perish. Spider did not have eternal life. That's right. And why did that spider not have promises never to perish? Didn't have promises of eternal life? Didn't have Christ. That's right. Jesus didn't come to the earth as the God spider and die on the spider cross for the spider sins. It's just a dumb little spider. Now it's a dead little spider. All right. But look at verse 28 again. Understand, there's three things being spoken here, and the first two of them are, I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. That's the second item. And, and then he'll describe their security here in a moment. But I don't know if you ever consider that both of these are um, provisions from Jesus Christ to us. They're not strictly synonymous. You can contrast them like John 3.16 contrasts them. You have perishing ones and you have saved ones. And the saved ones are not perishing. And the saved ones have eternal life. The perishing ones do not have eternal life. But they are two separate functions. Both provided, of course, for the new, new person in Christ. So he gives his sheep eternal life. Secondly, he promises them never to perish. Never to perish. Thirdly, He promises to keep them securely held in his hand. He promises to keep them securely held in his hand. Three promises that are made to this sheep. The father gives the sheep to the son. The son gives the sheep three promises. The gift of eternal life. The promise to never perish. 
and the secure uh, holding in his right hand. You cannot lose your salvation. If, uh, if you've got a friend in an in a Arminian-type church that believes they can lose their salvation, John chapter 10. I bring them to John chapter 10 any day of the week. And look at this. What is eternal life? What is eternal life? And um, what is uh, never perishing? And what is secured, heldly, uh, secu- held secure in the, in the right hand? That's, that's three clear statements of security, all three in the same verse, all three making the overwhelming point. And uh, if they get all worked up about themselves and worked up about, well, you know, what they did to earn it or what they did to deserve it or what they did to throw it away and all that, uh, because remember, again, in an Arminian theology approach, they're stressing the human side of things, that they came to Christ when they believed, and well, what happens if they stop believing? See, oh, well, you know, I used to believe that, I don't believe that anymore. So uh, under Arminian teaching, if you don't believe that anymore, well, then uh, maybe you're not saved anymore. Okay? That's the, the horrible fearfulness of Arminian theology. Well, bring them here. Show them the other side. Show them the side that does not bring into the focus uh, our believing, but brings into focus the Father's giving the sheep to the Son. Uh, uh, yeah, the sheep to the Son. And the Father gives the sheep to the Son. That's on God's side of things. Show them the other side of the sovereignty, free will uh, conundrum, as it were. All right. You ever think about eternal life and not perishing as distinct items? Yeah. Give that some thought. Chew on that. Then put your socks back on. Because it, it, it does. It blew my socks off. I started looking at it and said, wait a minute, there's two different items there. Two different promises. And what is the conceivable idea of somebody with eternal life perishing? Or what is the conceivable idea of, uh, of um, yeah, having one and not the other? What, what kind of a fearfulness might that be? of perishing with eternal life. That's, that's the dreadful fear or the dreadful uh, what-if scenario that caused God to post a cherubim at the, at the Garden of Eden when He drove Adam and Eve out and said, you can't come back in here because there's a danger that these perishing ones could eat from that fruit of the tree of life. Can you imagine? I mean, I want eternal life. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I have eternal life. I love eternal life. I'm as excited as anybody to have eternal life. In large part because it's not going to be this body <laughs> that's going to live forever. Can you imagine? This thing starts breaking down it. I've got to be careful here. Use your own number. Okay, throw your own number out there. You know, it starts breaking out by the time you hit 80, you're not doing so well. Or 60, you're not, you know, you're noticing some things. Even after 40, you start spotting some things that weren't happening in your 20s and 30s. Can you imagine? And then, can you imagine turning 90, turning 100, turning 110, and you still can't die, and your body's getting more and more and more decrepit, and what do you do on your 200th birthday when you can't even get out of bed, your 300th birthday, and you're just this sack of bones kind of a thing, but you're still alive because you have eternal life? Yuck! Absolute yuck. All right. Point D. Although the Father gives the sheep to Jesus Christ, the Father maintains a secure handhold. See, the Father gives to the Son, but He doesn't let go. The Father gives to the Son and still holds on. 
So now we're actually possession of the Father and the Son. Don't think that the Father just lets go or gives up and says, okay, here, you have them. I don't want them anymore. Right? We are a gift from the Father to the Son, but the Father still maintains a hold. All souls belong to the Father. So recognize this, that the sheep that are given to the Son are given to the Son, but the Father still holds. So the Father has a a hold on the sheep and the Son takes a hold on the sheep. How are we going to get out of two hands of sovereignty now? If you're going to lose your salvation. Remember, we had three declaration statements of security in the one verse. Eternal life, never perishing, held secure in the hand. Now we have not only those three statements of security, but now we add to that a second hand of sovereignty. In verse 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So, although the Father gives the sheep to Jesus Christ, the Father maintains a secure handhold. And so the Father hands the sheep, Christ takes hold of the sheep, and now two hands of sovereignty are holding that sheep secure. Man, how are you going to get out of that? I've used this several times with folks, and I hope with some success, I think with some success, at least in the immediate conversations, I've seen light bulbs come on, and I've seen people at least go, well, yeah, that, you know, that give me something to think about. But if, if you are that omnipotent that you can overcome the Father and the Son, man, you are some kind of awesome God, aren't you? We might have to start calling you the supreme being because you just overpowered God the Father and God the Son. Man, that's that's pretty powerful. And, of course, no one wants... You, when you speak that tongue-in-cheek or that sarcastically, well, then that makes people uncomfortable. You know, don't call me the supreme being. I'm not greater than God. Of course I'm not greater than God. Well, you just thought you could lose your salvation or take yourself out of His hand. You You just overpowered the Father. You just overpowered the Son. See, and uh, you just overpowered God twice. You, and, and when you get to that way of thinking and you re- recognize if you are that sovereign, that omnipotent, that powerful, and that be your own God, you go save yourself. You don't need you don't need salvation. You're God. OK, I'm making you com- uncomfortable at all. The, the, the sarcasm and the tongue in cheek and the irony of this is designed. It's ludicrous, but it's designed to focus attention on the truth, to say, wait a minute, how can I overpower sovereignty twice? How can I overpower God's, the Father's hand, God the Son's hand? You know, and then you go to Romans 8 and seal the deal. You say, look, no created, are you a created thing? Then you can't separate yourself from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. You're a created thing. And uh, the impact of it there. Now, for our final nine minutes... I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one communicates a paradoxical... Is that a word? Paradoxical positional truth. I know paradox is a word. Paradox is a noun. Can you turn it into an adjective? Paradoxical? I just did. A paradoxical, paradoxical positional truth. I and the Father are one. And it deals with position... Similar to our positional truth in Christ. All right. And what does it mean to be one with the Father? We want to understand what it means to be one. There's a lot of realms in which the Scripture describes one, for example. Uh, there is no Jew nor Gentile, but they are one in Christ. That's Galatians 
In the Galatians aspect of one in Christ, though, it is the masculine number one as opposed to the neuter number one. And here's where having a gender-based language helps. English is typically not a gender feature language. Okay? Not like Spanish, where you've got gender to your nouns and adjectives and so forth. And you've got to match your adjectives with your noun and your gender. We understand that, right? You all, anyone here speaks Spanish or French or German? They're all gender languages. Well, in Greek, of course, we've got masculine, feminine, and neuter. Same thing with the numbers, the numerals. There's a masculine number one, there's a feminine number one, there's a neuter number one. This is the neuter, hen. It's not heis, it's hen. It's the neuter, number singular, hen. Okay. By the way, there is no plural form of the number one. It's only a singular. All right. I don't know why. Now, in Galatians 3.28, just if you want to contrast, in Galatians 3.28, there is the (coughs) nature of Jew and Gentile. Uh, You who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And that actually uses the masculine number one there. And there's a significance to that in the sense that um, Jews don't stop being Jews. Gentiles don't stop being Gentiles when they're positionally placed in the body of Christ. Likewise, um, slaves aren't automatically granted human freedom when they become believers. And uh, free people aren't immediately plunged into a, a slavery condition when they become believers. Uh, men don't quit being men. Women don't quit being women when you get saved. Okay, The oneness of the positional truth of being in Christ is a subject for study. We're not going to study it today, but we've studied it before. All right, and it's a it's a oneness of position that does not alter whatever you were prior. Make sense? So you're still a woman after you get saved. Okay, I'm still a man after I got saved. We're all still Gentile dogs after we got saved. But positionally, we're neither. We're now one in Christ. Now it's different because it's neuter here in John chapter ten. And it's a one, uh, not one person, but one thing. And so we have a a slightly different concept with the oneness of um, I and the Father are one. How is it that the Father and the Son are one? And why is the Holy Spirit excluded from that? Why is it that the Father and the Son are one? Now, we're going to teach Trinity, of course. Father, Son, Holy Spirit are one in Trinity. One in essence, one in nature, one in person. Or three in person. So what is this oneness here? And is it limited to God? What other passages do we have that have oneness in the neuter that we might be able to relate to the oneness in the neuter here? Well, we have one in John chapter 17 and verse 11. The same oneness between the Father and the Son is not limited to the Father and the Son. In fact, Jesus Christ wants us to have that same oneness. John seventeen eleven. I am no longer in the world, yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we. That they may be one, and that's the neuter number, hen, the neuter singular, one. We are to have a oneness 
that is equivalent to the oneness between the Father and the Son. I've still not defined that for you, but I'm just laying the, the groundwork for what it is. All right. What is the oneness between the Father and the Son? It's the same oneness that Jesus wants us to have with each other. Wants us to have with each other. So he says, um, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. Jesus desired for the twelve, and then, of course, by extension, all believers, by extension, us today in the church. Literally, of course, he's praying for the twelve here in John 17. That, that's the them in this, uh, in this context. Jesus desired for the twelve to have oneness as he and the Father are one. This uh, doctrine in John 10 is not only a doctrine of eternal security, the fact the Father holds, the Son holds, we're secure, I and the Father are one. It, it goes far beyond our eternal security. It goes into everything that encompasses the Father's work, the Father's nature, the Son's work, the Son's nature, and it's the oneness that we're to have as well in the pursuit of that. Another passage, same chapter, John 17. Because oneness gets defined here. We finally get a definition. John 10.30 tells us, I and the Father are one, but it didn't tell us what that was. And John 17.11 says, I want the twelve, I want them to be one even as we are one. But it didn't define what that was. We start to get that definition now in John 17, 21 and 22 and 23. Oneness is defined as mutual reciprocal abiding. That's oneness. Mutual reciprocal abiding. John 17, 21. Mutual reciprocal glorification. That's John 17, 22. And the fellowship of the Father and Son for a witness to the cosmos. That's John 17.23. We're going to look at, a, at a, a trio of verses in John 17, verses 21, 22, and 23. And in these three verses, we see the definition for this oneness. We see what the, what the Apostle John means when he says one in terms of the neuter number, the neuter singular, hen, the number one. This passage here in John 17 relates it. I think very clearly, I think undeniably, in verse 11, that they may be one even as we are one. And so we see here the follow-up to John 10.30 here in John 17. All right, John 17. And this, is, by the way, also is how we take it from not just the 12, but to us as well. Notice um, verse 20 says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. In other words, it's not just limited to the 12. Not just limited to the apostles, not just limited to the to uh, to these guys, but for those also who believe in me through their word. In other words, when they in the future enter fully into their apostolic ministry and they start writing the New Testament text and they start establishing churches and they start um, building the the on the foundation the body of Christ and so forth, that uh, we fall into focus here because of verse twenty. Those who believe in me through their word. That's what that's how he's able to speak of the coming church age without revealing the coming church age and keeping the coming church age still in mystery. That they may all be one, even as you. Now, this is the same language from verse 11 when he says that they may be one, even as we are. But it fleshes it out with a fuller definition. 
that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. There's mutual reciprocal abiding. Mutual reciprocal abiding in the Father, the Father in the Son, dwelling in each other. See, Jesus Christ was continually occupied with Christ and the Father was continually... Uh, I mean, Jesus Christ was occupied with the Father. God the Father was occupied with Christ. It was mutual, reciprocal, abiding. Who are we dwelling on? Are we dwelling on the Father? Are we dwelling on the Son? Are they dwelling on us? Dwelling in us? Well, as far as they are, of course, they're dwelling in us. Are we dwelling in them? Well, I would be, but I don't have time. I'm busy. I got work to do. I have hobbies. I have pastimes. I have, uh, you know, I, I can, I can think about Jesus one day a week. You know, on Sunday I can put on a suit and go to church and think about Jesus, and then, you know, then I go home. And there's, there's daily life. There's work to do. There's, there's bills to pay. You know, I. Uh, well, I'll illustrate some more on this next week because we're running out of time. But the um, the the uh, hobby approach to Christianity, you know, you pay attention every so often. You check it out occasionally. You read a verse here or there. You visit a church uh, on occasion. It, it's 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 just a hobby approach to things of the Lord. It's not abiding in Christ. It's not abiding in the Word of God. It's not a disciple. A disciple who is a disciple? The one who abides in my Word. I think, uh, you know, the approach, it's kind of like the approach I have to uh, these days anymore. I don't follow baseball as much as I used to. In fact, it's kind of pathetic. I barely even pay attention to it anymore. Maybe once a month or a couple you know, a couple times a month, I'll go look at a sports page, see what the standings are, see uh, how badly the, the Mariners have tanked, or see how badly the, the uh, Red Sox have tanked, and I see the Yankees seem to have some dominion there in the American League East. And, and so you look at it and say, all right, well, maybe it'll change next month, maybe it'll change next month. It's closer to the end of the season. We'll see uh, where, where the who's who's closing on the wild card, what the playoffs are going to be like, kind of a thing. But just kind of passive, really. Maybe by the time the World Series comes on, I might check out a game or whatever. Probably not. Just don't have time for it anymore. Doesn't drive me anymore. Used to. Well, if that's our approach to Christianity, though, you see what I'm saying? Once a month or so, grab a Bible, check it out, read a verse or something. Listen to a listen to a preacher. Okay. Feel a little bit guilty about uh, you know my uh, dropping uh, six thousand dollars a year on greens fees and and only giving the Lord uh, you know hundred bucks uh, every third year or something. You know this this haphazard approach to to Christianity. To the, that's not a disciple. Anyway, I'm three minutes long. We'll have more to say on this. And then we're going to move on to verses 31 through 39 because even as the Jews attempted to murder him, he didn't back down. He just gave him the same message again in even stronger terms. Comes right back again in stronger terms. He said, I and the Father are one. And man, they wanted him dead. So he doesn't back down. Teaches him some more. And we'll pick up on that next week. Thank you, Father, for this day, for the truth of your word. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.